So this morning we are going to be in Matthew chapter 4 as we continue our journey through the gospel according to Matthew. So uh, if you don't have your Bible with you and you'd like to use one of ours, uh, feel free to grab one again out of the seat pocket. There should be some in every row. If you don't have a Bible, congratulations, uh, you now have a Bible. So take that home with you as well as a parting gift. If you're a child of technology and you like to use uh, your idle phone or your Satan song, uh, feel free to take those out as well, and you can type in Matthew chapter 4, and it'll pull uh, that up as well. So this morning, we are going to be talking about uh, the temptation of Christ. But before we get to that point, let's just quickly review how did we get here in just four short chapters. And so you might remember that in Matthew chapter 1, uh, we looked at the genealogy of Jesus, the family tree, his family line. And, and our takeaway from that, it was we felt a whole lot better about our family tree after we looked at what the Messiah had going on genetically with his family lineup. All right, the second chapter we saw uh, the birth of Christ, right? The miraculous uh, Holy Spirit birth between the Holy Spirit and Mary. And we saw Jesus uh, brought forth into the world by chapter 2. Chapter 3, where we were at last week, we saw the baptism of Jesus. So uh, the wild man, John the Baptist, out in the wilderness, uh, clothed in camel hair. Nobody wore their camel hair today. Apparently that fashion statement didn't catch on with anyone. But John the Baptist baptizing in the wilderness, and uh, he baptizes Jesus. And there at the close of chapter 3, we saw uh, the appearance of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all in one location. And what does the Father say as the Spirit descends upon Jesus? But he says, this is my Son, I love Him, and I'm pleased with Him. And so we, we looked at that, we reviewed that the Father was pleased with the Son even before the Son ever performed a miracle, even before He ever had a teaching. And so we can reflect upon that as we are children of God, that He is pleased with us. But all this, what we remember through our study, is that Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing for a specific purpose, to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's wanting to point people to Jesus as the fulfillment, which is why the key word in the Gospel of Matthew is fulfill, that if Jesus is to be the Messiah, he must fulfill prophecies written about him in the Old Testament. And not just a few of them, he must fulfill all of them in totality. And so, uh, Matthew is making a case to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Which brings us to today, when we see the temptation of Christ. Now the word temptation maybe isn't the greatest translation, but it could also mean uh, testing, or trials, or proving. And so, what I want to point you to is that as Jesus is being tempted, this is not an effort by the Father to allow him to be tempted to prove what he wasn't, but instead what he was. And what I mean by that, as an example, is uh, I don't, if any of you know this about me, but I actually don't have any kind of pastoral training. Sorry, if you want to leave right now, you can. Uh, but I actually have a degree in engineering, of all things. And uh, as an engineer, as a civil engineer in particular, uh, we design roads and bridges. And so you can imagine if we design a brand new, beautiful bridge over the Embraer River. And as a part of that design, we then go to construction. We build this beautiful new bridge over the crystal clear rivers of the Embraer. And, and uh, as we get this completed, we decide to test the bridge. Right Before we allow traffic on it, we're going to load test the bridge. But we're not testing the bridge with the idea that it might fail. Right? That would be a colossal waste of money and time and efforts. We don't load the bridge until it actually collapses. We instead prove that the bridge 
can handle the pressure, right? As pressure is applied, as weight is pushed down on it, we're proving what it is, not what it is not, which is what is happening here with the temptation of Jesus. So pick up with me in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. We'll read these first 11 verses, and then we'll comb back through these when we're done. Verse 1 of Matthew 4 says this, And then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. And now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Verse 5, And then the devil took him up into the holy city and, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Verse 8, And again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels became and ministered to him. My Heavenly Father, we just uh, we lift this passage of Scripture up to you. And in this, uh, you desire to show us uh, your glory. Lord. You, you desire to show us what you would have uh, people to, to gather, and to understand, and to absorb. And so, Father, as we have just read, we just pray you would bless this Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. So to begin, we see verse 1, right? And, and what we find is Jesus coming off of an emotional, a spiritual high, right? This baptism is this amazing moment. He is then led directly. In fact, the Gospel of Mark, his account, he uses the word immediately. He is taken out into the wilderness. And so the, the point I want to bring out to begin with is that oftentimes coming off of a spiritual high, a really awesome feeling, a wonderful moment, what we'll find is that is when we are at our most vulnerable, right? So when we are feeling really good about things and and God is doing amazing things, uh, oftentimes we let our guard down a little bit. And this is the time where we actually need to be more aware than ever about what's taking place around us. And so here's Jesus. He's coming off this emotional, spiritual moment, and now he is immediately uh, taken out into the wilderness, where in verse 2 we see he's fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Now I want to point out to you that numbers in the Bible have significance, right? So by way of example, the number 7. It is believed to be the number of completion, right? God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them in six days, and on the seventh day he rested, the number of completion, the number of perfection. The number eight is the number of new beginnings, because after the completion there is then the new beginning. The number six, the number of man, right? Man was created on the sixth day. Now, also we find is the number 40 is the number of judgment. So, 40 days and 40 nights, God judged the earth during the time of Noah. 40 years, the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness because of their lack of faith. And so here in this spot, we see 40 days and 40 nights has significance. Now, some of you may say, wait a minute, Jesus was being judged. But remember, a judge is going to make a declaration of if you are guilty or not. 
And so he wasn't being judged to prove that he was guilty, but instead for vindication, to prove that he was, in fact, innocent. Now then, next what we notice is that Jesus was led here by the Spirit. That throughout his life, throughout his ministry, he was always being led, not by his own will, his own desire, but instead to the Spirit. He subjected himself to the will of the Father and always by the leading of the Spirit, even if it was a place he didn't expect to go. And so, with this passage of Scripture, there there are lots of questions we might have. So I'm going to try to put a few of these questions up here and go through them one at a time. The first one we might be asking is, does God tempt people? And so I apologize ahead of time. We're going to do some Bible drills. James chapter 1, verse 12. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is going to give us the answer to this. Does God tempt people? So go to the right a little bit. I cheated. I put Mark's in my Bible ahead of time, so if it takes you a minute, that's okay. James chapter 1, verse 12, this is what he says. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. But let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so the answer is, does God allow, or does God uh, tempt people? The reality is he does not. He does not tempt, but what James says is what actually tempts us is our own desires. What's going on in our own heart is actually the thing that is tempting us. And so when we fail, the reality of it is, is that my failure actually proves what I am. I am a sinner by my very nature. And I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner, right? It's, it's a nature problem that each of us has that come down from Adam. Well, what God does do is he does allow temptation and trials to take place in our life. But the reason for this is he actually wants us to run to him, right? As a father. As a good dad, he's looking for us to, to come to him in these times of need. Because all of us are going to have slip-ups and failures and struggles. He ultimately, what he's desiring, the reason for our creation, is for a relationship. He's looking for a relationship. And so these trials, these temptations, draw us nearer to him. Now then, question number two, when it comes up on the screen, is, wait for it. Wait for it. Here it comes. Could Jesus have sinned? Could Jesus in this spot have sinned? And so to the right, just a little bit further, I'm going to go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. And this is what Peter says. For this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. There was no deceit, no sin in him or in his mouth. So the follow-up question, question 2B is, is that enough? Is it enough that Jesus simply had no sin in him? Well, the only problem with that is Adam also had no sin. Until Genesis chapter 3, Adam was perfect as well. And so uh, what we see is, here's Adam in Genesis before the fall. He's in the perfect spot, perfect conditions. He's in the Garden of Eden. 
The birds are flying around. He's naming things, right? The, there's not even any rain. The skies are blue. The, the earth is watered from a mist. It's this beautiful setting. There's even Eve running around frolicking with no clothes on. Like, guys, this is perfect, right? This is the perfect setup for like what all of us dream of. And yet, in this spot, he failed. He failed miserably. And we continue to see the results of his failure. Now, take that as an example, and then we look at Jesus. Jesus is in less than stellar conditions, to say the very least. He's in the wilderness. He's uh, hungry, right? Forty days and forty nights, no food. He's weak. And yet, in this spot where nothing is going his way, he does not fail. And I would submit to you is because there was a very big difference between Adam and Jesus. Adam was man. Jesus was God. He was fully God and fully man all at the same time. I realize that's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but because of this fact, he was God, he could not fail. There was no deceit found in him. There was no way for him to fail. And so, the third question is, if this is the case, if if God doesn't tempt anyone, Jesus could not have possibly sinned, then why go through this whole charade in the first place, right? Like, why go through all this? And so, this goes back to what we talked about in the introduction. This wasn't done to prove that Jesus would fail or could fail, but instead to prove that he could not. This is proof that he was perfect. In Exodus chapter 12, as God gives them the commandment of Passover, this opportunity for them to avoid the judgment that would take place in Passover, they were each to take a lamb within their house. And they were not to take just any old lamb out of the flock, but to take a perfect lamb. And in order to prove that it was perfect, they were to bring the lamb into their home and for four days examine it, to look at it, to study it, to make sure it was perfect, worthy of sacrifice. And so this is what God is doing. He's allowing us an opportunity to peer in and prove and see that he was, in fact, perfect enough to die for our sins, to cover us, and to save us from certain death. Now, then another reason for this entire ordeal that Jesus has to endure is found in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. This is what the writer of Hebrews actually had to say here in Romans chapter 4, or Romans, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, for we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And so why did Jesus go through all this? to identify with us, to identify with our temptations so he could not only just merely sympathize with us and what we have to go through, but he could have empathy. Empathy means, hey, listen, I've been there. I know what you're going through. So lots of times we have loss and we have struggle and we have all this strife in our life. We wonder what what good could possibly come out of this. What you find is others have had these same things take place. You have empathy for them. Because you know, I've been in that spot. And so as we have this high priest, this great high priest, he's perfect in every way, but you know what he can do? He can relate. As we get to come boldly, is what the writer says here in verse 16, to the throne of grace. What he's saying is we can bust right on in on him as kids and go, Lord, this is what I'm going through. 
right? For me, as a dad, my kids bust in in the most inopportune times. And I get frustrated by this because it's always when we're in the bathroom. Well, like, it never fails. Apparently, a closed door doesn't mean dad's busy. But th- that's what they do. They come boldly while I'm on the throne. Like, I need a little bit of peace and quiet. But what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, I want you to come boldly to the throne of grace. I want to empathize with you. I want to relate to you. I want to hear what your struggles are because I've been there. I've been tempted in every way that you have. And so there's questions that we can have answered through this study. Now then, to continue on, uh, let's look at what the nature of temptation is, right? How is it that we are tested? How is it that we are tempted. And what I want to share with you is that Satan has a playbook. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, John lays the playbook out there for us. And what we're going to find is that Satan actually only has three plays that he runs against us. And he runs them over and over and over again to the point of perfection. Now, in junior high football in KZ, Illinois, eighth grade year, we had a football coach named Art Newton. Little bitty guy, but he had kind of a List that he would talk to us like this, and he'd get all fired up, but he would only let us run plays that we ran to perfection. And so to begin the season, we only had three plays fullback dive, uh, power right, and sweep. Those are the only plays that we had. And we would complain, Coach, how is it we only have three plays? He said, You don't have three plays, you've got six. You got dive right, dive left, power right, power left, sweep right, sweep left. You got six plays, boys. Go run to perfection. That was his point. Go out there and run those plays to perfection. And if you do that, I'll give you more plays in the playbook. So here we are, uh, fourth game of the season. We're undefeated. We're playing the dreaded Cumberland Pirates, right? On the field, they're right outside of Toledo. It also doubles as a cow pasture, I believe, based on the quality of the field. And and we're in the game. We still only have three plays to our name. And, And so he calls my number. I'm the fullback, right? And so as a fullback, we maybe get the ball four or five times a game at most. It's always short yardage. You know, just occasionally we get the ball because everybody else is tired. And so he calls my number. Fullback dive right. Well, I'm excited. or I'm getting the football. And, and what never happens is holes never open up and we actually find ground to run on. The hole opens. It's a beautiful thing. Ten yards, first down. And so what's Coach Newton call the next play? Fullback dive left. I'm getting the ball two times in a row. I'm excited, right? I get the ball the second time, same thing, 10 yards, first down. Now we're moving the ball down the field. Third play, fullback dive right. Like, whoa, wait a second, three times in a row, the same play and the same result. 10 more yards, we're going down the field, but now I'm getting winded because I'm not used to carrying the ball three times in a row. And so from the sidelines, he yells, run it again. And what do we do? We go out there and we run it again. He's yelling now where the defense can hear us. Run it again, boys. Run it again. We run the play eight times in a row until finally we score a touchdown, six more points, and I am dying. By the time the eighth time came around, I couldn't feel my legs. Like the, the thing you always hope for as a fullback is to finally get the ball and get it carried in for a touchdown, but I'm exhausted over and over again. Run it again. Do you understand that this is what Satan does to us? I think I just made Coach Newton Satan in the story. So I'm going to have to apologize. If he's still with us, God bless you, Coach Newton. I didn't mean to make you Satan in the story. But the reality of it is, this is what happens over and over again. Satan runs these plays 
and perfection on us, and we are susceptible to them. And oftentimes, like I was with the football, I think that's the thing I want, right? It, it feels pretty good the first time. The second time, yeah, it wasn't quite as good as the first, but I'm still feeling good. And by the time we're done, we're utterly exhausted, and the thing we thought we wanted is not really the thing we wanted at all. So with that said, let's look at the plays uh, that the enemy runs against us. First John chapter 2, verse 16, what he writes is this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And so here's this playbook. It's simple. The lust of the eyes. This looks so good. The lust of the flesh. This feels good. And the pride of life. This will make me look good to everybody else. And and so these are the same plays if we look back at the interaction between Satan and Eve that he ran on her, right? She looks at the fruit and what she see? Boy, that looks good. Right, The lust of the eyes, that tastes good, the lust of the flesh. And this is good for knowledge. Right, This is going to give me pride. I'm going to be able to be lifted up, be like God. And he started all of it by saying, surely God did not say. He starts with that little bit of doubt created in our mind. Surely he didn't say that you will die. You will not surely die. So the doubt's created, but then the plays are ran to perfection. I also want to point out to you 1 Corinthians chapter 10, because I think it's important for us to understand that, that these things are not uncommon either. What, what Paul writes here to the Corinthian church, he says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So while these temptations are not uh, uncommon, they are common, they are also very real. The thing that tempts me may not be the thing that tempts you at all, right? But, but it doesn't make your thing any less real than my thing. It makes all of us in this spot, and yet what we see is by God's grace, each time and in every spot, He gives us a way to escape. He gives us an opportunity to get out of it. All right. Back to our text at hand, now that we've done Bible calisthenics, uh, chapter uh, 4 of Matthew is where we're at. And and let's look at what Satan does as he runs these plays on Jesus and see from his interactions. Verses 3 and 4, we see, Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, notice the doubt he tries to create right off the bat. If you are, creating question. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And so we see the lust of the flesh, right? Now you might wonder, what's wrong with eating a little bit of bread? Is it possible Jesus was on the Atkins diet? He, it was a keto. He can't have carbs, right? This is not a carb issue. It's not a, a keto issue. But, but maybe, uh, maybe it's not that he doesn't have the power to create bread from rocks. But we know from Bible stories, right, Jesus could have easily done this. This was not even a challenge for him. In just a few weeks, we're going to be looking at when he feeds 5,000 men, let alone women and children, from just a couple fish and a few loaves. Right? Creation of food was not an issue for Jesus. But the issue in this spot is it was his will versus the Father's will. What Satan's really trying to get at is, look, you're hungry, take care of old number one. Right? Your, your flesh is crying out, 
Instead, what Jesus does is he always puts the spirit ahead of the flesh, which, by the way, is how we were created. We were created as spiritual beings. When we were, uh, when God formed us and created Adam there and made him in his image, there, man was actually created spirit, soul, body. That's the way we were originally intended to be. And so as Adam and Eve were going around in the garden naked, I, I believe they were actually clothed in their spirit, in their glory, reflecting the Father that would come down and spend time with them. They were able to be in communion with him because there was no break in that. And yet, when they decided to put their will above the will of the Father, what happened is the Spirit then retreated. They became body, soul, spirit, which is what we are as we operate daily. It's why it's a constant battle with our flesh. Our flesh wants to dominate. And so what Jesus is showing here in this example is he chose to put the Spirit ahead of the flesh, the will of the Father ahead of his own will, and this is the way he always subjected himself. His response then he takes out of the law of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by the word, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father, pointing us back to the life in the Spirit. And so this is the response as Jesus is confronted with the lust of the flesh. The next one we see is the lust of the eyes. In verse 5, what the enemy does is he, he comes to him, he says, the devil took him up, into the, holy t- into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, here's the doubt again, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. So the lust of the eyes, what he's saying is, make yourself look awesome. Go for it, right? You jump off this thing, what's the word of God say? He says he's going to lift you up. He's not going to let you fall. He's going to protect you. And notice with me, Satan quotes Scripture. You understand that? The enemy, the tempter, knows the Word, right? He's not tricked by it. He knows it, but what's he do? He doesn't quote it all completely. For one, he takes the text out of context. And secondly, he misses a key phrase that is this, in all your ways. In all your ways. Is, is the phrase that he leaves out, and all his ways were the will of the Father. And so the piece he leaves out is take out the will of the Father and then test God, right? So Jesus' answer is then in verse 7, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And so his response, again, going back to the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, he goes back to the word and he says, you, shouldn't, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Don't go back and try to test God. And oftentimes, this is what we do, right? We get something in our head. We think, surely the Lord's going to bless it. I'm not possibly going to pray about this thing. I'm just going to say, the Lord's going to bless me. And we tempt Him. Whether we intend to do it or not, we tempt God by not using our connections that we have, the the prayer that we can have, the, the Holy Spirit connections. And so, what we see is testing God is essentially putting my will above his, and I'm trying to force his hand. I'm trying to become God in this situation. Now, there is one time in the entire scripture that God says you can test him. Uh, If any of you know that, some of you Bible students out there might know the one spot, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, God says, test me on this, and he's talking about giving money, tithes and offerings and time. 
Test me on this and see that I won't open the window of heaven and pour out a blessing so much you can't even contain it. That's the test that God says you can test him. The only spot in all of Scripture. And so, thou shalt not test the Lord your God. Now then, lastly, we see the pride of life. Verse 8, he says, And again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I give to you if you fall down and worship me. And so the promise here from Satan is, if you fall down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of heaven. Now notice something interesting about that. Jesus didn't argue with him. He didn't say, oh no, you didn't. Right? He didn't come at him like that. Like, you don't have the right to offer me all the kingdoms of heaven. Why is that? Because Satan had actually been given authority. Oh, wait a minute. Satan's got authority? Who gave Satan authority? We did. I'll take you there. Genesis chapter 1. All the way to the left of your Bible. Here's what God says to man after man is created. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living creature that moves on the earth. You and I, uh, Adam and Eve, I should say, were given dominion, authority over the entire earth. They were told by God to subdue it. They were given the title deed to the earth. It's yours. Run it. This is your business. I'm giving you authority. This is what God says. But at the fall, when they made the decision to serve another master, they subjected their authority to Satan. So they gave up the title deed to the earth. They turned it over. Now in ancient times, uh, title deeds were written on scrolls. They were, they were written out. If you had a title to a piece of property, it was written on a scroll, and they would uh, roll that scroll up and you'd keep it. But if you got in a point of need, if you had a, an issue and you needed money, perhaps you even needed to sell yourself, your property into slavery to pay a debt that you couldn't pay, you could sell your property. And the requirements that were needed for anyone to buy that property back were written on the outside of the scroll. So if someone wanted to buy it, a kinsman, right? If some other family wanted to come along and reclaim that property generations later, it's called a, a kinsman redeemer. He could redeem that property if he could satisfy everything that was written on the outside of the scroll. The property could return back to its rightful owner, the rightful family. Now, flip all the way to the right in the Bible. I said I was almost done with Bible drills, but I lied. Sorry about that. Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. This is what John describes in this heavenly scene. He says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look at it. And so John's response was, I wept very much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and loose the seven seals. What John sees is the title deed 
to the earth that was uh, forfeited by Adam in Genesis chapter 3. All the requirements that were needed that were written on the outside of the scroll could only be fulfilled by one person, that being the Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Son of David, was the only one that could fulfill all that was required to buy the earth back, right? To redeem it. This is what that word redeem means, to buy back what was already yours. And for God so loved the world, right? He didn't just come for you and I. He's coming back for you and I for sure. But he's coming back for the world, the entire world, to make it what it was always intended to be. Now, I went through all that to mention this, that what Satan always offers is what we already have in our own possession. Satan offered what was already Jesus's. Do you realize that? It was already promised to him. But the offer was, why wait? You can have it now. Boy, does that fit in with our culture or not, right? There's no, there's no need to wait. Uh, what Freddie Mercury said, right? Probably not the person we want to follow after, but, but this is a quote. I want it all and I want it now. I want it right now. And Satan's saying, you can have it right now. All you have to do is bow down to me. And Jesus' response in verse uh, verse 10 is, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And so again, he quotes from the law. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. This is what he, he says. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now I want to mention that because the promise of God is always to give joy and peace and patience. And all these things are what God promises. But oftentimes we have to wait. We can have joy, but the long eternal promise is something we have to wait for. And what Satan promises, you can have all this right now. But just like what it was for me with, with running that ball, it seemed like the thing I wanted. It felt good at the time. And yet time after time after time, the, the, the good feeling wears off. And what we find is it was all a lie. It was short term. It was temporary. The fix wasn't eternal. And so this is the promise of the devil when he, when he encourages us in the pride of life. And yet he can't fulfill it. It can't stand the test of time. Now, you also note that Satan leaves him there in verse 11. I want to point out that in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, that we, we see there that he left him for an opportune time. That as we get tempted and as we get tested, that we can see Satan flee, and yet it is often for a short season, and he will come back. And he will try these things again. But be encouraged, because as we go, what we find is that our reliance upon God and upon the Father to, to actually speak to us and work through us, we, we develop in this relationship. We begin to see his tricks coming. But here, here's some facts of life for you as we close today. Temptations, testing, trial, they are going to happen. You're going to, how's that for encouragement? You're going to be tried. You're going to be tested. Good luck. No, that's not the way we're going to leave. But, but the reality of it is, we are all going to be tested. We're all going to be uh, tried. But here's the news, the good news. What we just looked at in Revelation, the tempter has already failed. He's already been defeated, right? We are victorious in Christ. So how then can we respond? What, what ways can we possibly uh, have to counteract 
to go up against uh, these temptations that come from Satan. Uh, three things I want to mention this morning, uh, points of application. We can flee, we can follow, and we can fight. So first off, we can flee. What Paul writes there to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. And this is dealing specifically with sexual sins. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside his body, but he who commits sexual immorality uh, commits it against his own body. And so what Paul's saying is the first thing you can do when it comes to sin, specifically with this type of sin, because he knows we are very susceptible to this, is that we can flee. We can run from this thing. We can get out of there, right? Because we're not strong enough to go up against it. So, so run. In the words of one of the greatest actors of all of our time, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he would say, Get out! Run! Get out of the way! All right. So that's the best I could do with Arnold. But that's what he had to say, right? This is, this is a, a reality, right? Truth from Arnold. Run. Get out of there. You're not strong enough to go up against it. Secondly is to follow what Paul tells the church in Corinth in chapter 1, or in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so find someone in your life that you can imitate, someone you can come alongside that's, that's ahead of you a little bit in the game, right? Someone that can disciple you and take you under their wing. Maybe someone that's even been in the spot you're in, been tempted by the things you've been tempted by. But what, what Paul writes to the church in Galatia is this. This is one that is highlighter worthy. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Come along one another and bear each other's burdens so you don't have to go it alone. In other words, have accountability in your life. If you don't have an accountability partner, you need one. Someone you can trust, someone you can say, listen, here's the, the bad stuff, the dark stuff, the deep stuff that's going on. Uh, someone that can help. Because these things are too much for us to bear on our own. And so Paul gives this command to imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I want to encourage you, if you don't have that person in your life, find them, seek them out. And if you are a more advanced person spiritually, find someone that you can come alongside to encourage, to build up. And it needs to be a more mature Christian than a less mature Christian because as you're bearing one another's burdens, what this is compared to is like a yoke of oxen, right? So a team of oxen that would be two strapped together. A yoke is actually a wood beam that was attached across the back. And often they would take a young one and they would team it with an older one. And so as the young one stumbles and needs a little bit of help, the older one can, can, can continue on, right? They gain strength from one another, tied together. But the other thing I will tell you about oxen is they, they also have something else. They plow straight rows, right? They're able to plow together. And then the other thing that oxen do, uh, sorry about this, but they poop. Oxen poop, right? They poop a lot. And, and it can be messy. And, and we can step in it, right? And so oftentimes, uh, I'm being graphic and funny for a reason, but oftentimes we don't want to get involved and we don't want to be yoked to another oxen because we don't want to step in ox poop. We don't want to get our shoes dirty. But the reality is, is that this life, as we are connected and joined together as a church and as a community, we're going to get some poop on our shoes. It's just going to happen. If we don't, it's because we're not in the field working, right? 
Stay in the barn. Stay out of the mess and you won't get any poop on your shoes. But what Paul's saying here is, is that you need to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is what Jesus commands us to do. Now then, thirdly, the last thing is to fight. Right? The last one is to fight. As Paul writes to his young protege Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, this is what Paul writes to him. He says, But you, O man of God, I love how he builds Timothy up, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight, lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so Paul's encouragement to Timothy was fight, right? Get in there and do battle. And what is the only offensive weapon we have to do battle with? The Word of God. The sword of the Word. That's the only offensive weapon we're getting. So some of you might wonder, why do my fingers hurt from Bible drills this morning? It's so that you could get into the Word of God that was intentional this morning. Don't normally do that to you, but I want to encourage you. The only thing Jesus used to go up against Satan, he didn't put on the boxing gloves, right? He used the Word of God. That was the thing that he used. So if you don't have the Word of God at your fingertips or in your heart, if you're not in it, you are left with no weapons. And then, lastly, what's the activator that, that Paul encourages Timothy with? Fight the fight of faith. Faith is the activator. Belief that God can overcome. That I get to be yoked to Him. Right? He's the strong one. He's leading me along. He's the one that's activating this. Right? He's the one that comes alongside us. And then the last bit of encouragement is keep the faith in the fight. As Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he says, O ye of little faith, right? And then he compares their faith to the faith of a mustard seed. He says, oh, if you just had the faith of a mustard seed, you could tell that mountain to be cast into the sea and it would happen. And so oftentimes, uh, pastors make this parallel about the size of people's faith. That the mustard seed is a little bitty mustard seed. If you just had a little bitty faith. But I would also tell you that when he says, O ye of little faith, that also means the length of your faith, the depth of your faith. And so many of you have great faith. You have faith in things, right? You have faith and belief that God can do these things. But the problem that we have, that I often have, is that I don't keep my faith in it long enough. I have little faith. I have short faith. I'm going to go, I got faith. God's going to do it. Okay, he didn't do it. I'll go do something else. Right? So I have big faith, but I don't keep it in the fight, and so therefore I never see the victory because I don't stick with it. And so as it relates to temptations, oftentimes we have to fight, we have to battle, and sometimes, by God's grace, these things fall off like that. For me personally, coming to Christ in my mid-30s, truly coming to Jesus, what I found is a a guy that had a a contractor's mouth, right? I, I worked in construction. Boy, I could let it. I could lay down a slew of words that would make a sailor blush. But what happened to me, amazingly, is as I surrendered all to Jesus, that went away like that. I mean, it was like the words were gone. I still remembered them. I mean, I knew what they were, but they just went away. They were no longer in my vocabulary. I, I couldn't even. It's not that I won't have my mistakes. Don't get me wrong. But but the, but that 
that language had disappeared. And yet there were other things that did not go away nearly so quickly. And so the reality is, will we keep our faith in the fight? Will we continue to time and time again press into him? Because he will ultimately, and, and someday we will have victory. It might be the day we draw our last breath, that we will finally be as he is, as he always intended for us to be. But in the meantime, I might not be what I want to be, but I'm sure not what I used to be. So Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning so very thankful for this word. Thank you for a good word, Lord, your word. Thank you for planting it deep within our heart. Thank you, Father, for giving us this as a weapon that we can use, that no weapon of the enemy can stand against us. And I pray for everybody that's here, everybody that's watching online, that this would be the thing that they would grab a hold of, to know that you've given us ways out of our temptations. You've given us the ability to flee. You've given us people in church community to come alongside, to follow, to, to link up to, to be as oxen in the field. And then you've given us the ability to fight with your word. And so, Father, please help us to not fight one another with your word, but instead to realize who the true enemy is, that there's a spirit behind all these things that come against us, and it is not of this earth, but it is of another earth, or is it of another dimension, Lord? That there's a spirit of the age, the spirit of the air that fights against us. It's not flesh and blood. Lord, help us to be able to fight that, fight him. We praise you that you are already victorious, that you have already taken the scroll and you've loosed the seals, that you have reclaimed what was rightfully yours. God, you're so grateful for that. So, Father, please help us to grow in our faith, to have it be longer, to help us to keep our faith in the fight. We pray all this in Jesus' name.